Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture, as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. Thank you guys for being here. We've been in this series called Seven Big Questions. So we're going to continue the series today. And... Um, so far, we've been talking about uh, questions like, does life have a purpose? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Last week, James tackled the question, is Christianity too narrow? So if you missed any of these, you can always go back uh, to our website or to our Facebook page and check them out. I would encourage you to do that. Um, but today, we're going we're gonna to start our fourth big question out of our seven, okay? Um, and today's question is, is the Bible reliable have you ever had that question before okay let's start off with a little bit of dialogue what do you think the bible is a collection of books okay great what else do you think the bible is in the back word of god in the back yeah all the way in the back tam An account of different people who experienced God. Yes, sir. An instruction manual. Revelation of truth. God's path to Him. A history book. God's love letter to us. Any of these sound familiar? Have you guys heard these before? I love these church answers. All right. Yeah. Collection of poems. All right, come here, young man. I'm going to give you something. Thank you for sharing. So I shared about uh, the question of pain and suffering a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to give you a new book out by Dr. Jacoby on the topic. So please uh, enjoy that. <laughs> what do you think the Bible is? Any other response to that? What do you think the Bible is? A love letter, a history book, an instruction manual. Do you notice how large of an array of answers we have? God's love letter. Well, which one is it, people? Is it a love letter or is it history? Is it an instruction manual or is it something else? Like, we have this wide array, a very diverse understanding of even what the Bible is, okay? And so we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit. But first, let's take a quick look at what some other people say and think the Bible is. USB into the, uh... alright, I'm not picking it up, sorry, hold on a second guys, I'm having some tech issues this morning,
for me as a guidebook? I think it's inspired by God, and I do think it's filled with inaccuracies. From a you know historical context, if you're like a literary studies person, the Bible is uh, um, just another text in, in many ways, and and truth is. I guess I'm a bigger believer in empirical evidence, you know. It helps me figure out how to live in kind of this crazy world. The Bible is the most trustworthy book on the planet Earth. Uh, I personally don't think everything should be taken literally. And I think, it, uh, depending on the person, they should be able to interpret the Bible the way that they want to. There's plenty of things that even if you don't believe in God, there's plenty of things in the Bible that can improve your life, can, um, if you come to appreciate them, help you gain knowledge and wisdom, um, and help you be a better person. Muchas personas uh, leen en Biblia en diferentes uh, man maneras. So, lo, como los, usted lo lee, es como tú vas a tomar en vida. I think the values um, that are presented in the Bible and the stories, I mean, they're all stories that apply to, to everyday life and things that have actually happened. So I think there's definitely truth and you can definitely trust in what it's saying. The Bible's still here. This book is almost 2,000 years old. It still exists for some reason, and to me, that stands out. That means something. It's not coincidence. All right, so <clears throat> I've personally been reading and studying this book for a little under 20 years now in a serious way. And as I've been sharing the Bible with other people over the course of that time, especially here in the United States, I find that many people believe that the Bible is from God, especially right here in the, the belt buckle of the Bible belt. And so often I'll ask them, when did you come to the conviction that the Bible is actually from God? And the answer I most often get is, um, uh, well, uh, um, he and Hall and Paul and Maul and all of that. And then eventually they get around to a remark that's sort of like, well, I've just always believed it was from God. Okay, so it wasn't that way for me exactly. Um, I guess I grew up in an environment kind of like the Bonner research talked about here in the video. People said that they believed the Bible was sacred text, but no one ever really talked about it. I never really saw anyone reading it. And if I did, those kind of people that read the Bible, they seemed pretty weird to me. And so by the time I was a teenager and young adult, I tended to think that the Bible was just this rule book developed by people to control civilizations or something. So people wouldn't eat each other in a Darwinian struggle of survival of the fittest, right? And, you know, sadly, of course, the truth is, is that 
war and brutality in the name of God and Jesus has occurred in great measure throughout human history. But I'm not really sure why I thought the Bible was that, other than it seemed to make sense to me and people around me tended to agree with me. And so that's what I thought. I thought, ah, this is just something that was kind of created, you know, kind of like the guy on here said, ah, it's just a storybook, you know. <clears throat> it makes sense, right? Once you've lived a little while, you see the savagery of humanity, the darkness of this thing we call life, how brutal life is on every level, right? Or is it just me? Okay, maybe it's just me, but you think there's got to be some control mechanisms here, right? Otherwise, everybody's just going to do what they want and get what they want at the, at the expense of nothing. Nothing's going to stop that. And so how do we actually survive billions, millions and billions of people over long periods of time without just devouring each other. There's got to be some control mechanisms. And I thought, well, these religious texts are probably some of that. But if I'm honest, I think looking back, the real reason I thought the Bible was that is that it was an easy way for me to dismiss the things that it said and the things that it would demand of my life. And the other irony is that in all of this, I never even really read the Bible. I had all these judgments about it. I thought, this is what it is. I was so unfamiliar with it. My conclusions were incredibly ignorant. But I was fine with that. And everyone else around me seemed to be fine with that. And we thought, ah, oh, phooey, that Bible. And you know, I think there was another component too, and that was people and how people portrayed the Bible and the conclusions I made about the Bible through the people that were representing it. You know what I'm talking about, right? The Bible bashers, those people that want to hit you upside the head with the Bible. I was like, ah, oh, fooey on that. So I got to dismiss the Bible easily as just some religious text that people made up to control society and kind of make people be good and not just slaughter each other, try to have some sort of order in what would otherwise be chaos. And then when I saw people, you know, holding up signs on campus saying, you know, God hates fags and, you know, you're going to burn, I thought, yeah, who needs that? We all probably have some perspective on the Bible, right? We all have some belief about it. And whether or not you've been devoting to reading it and studying it for a long time, or if you're just starting out and trying to learn and make sense of how the Bible even fits together, this is an important question for us. Is the Bible reliable? So I want to start by defining this word reliable, right? Because clarity is important. Reliable in the English language basically just means it's something that's able to be trusted, okay? A common thesaurus would have synonyms like dependable, good, well-founded, authentic, valid, genuine, sound, true. So let's take a look at this short Bible project video to help us understand just what is the Bible. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? 
Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling. And they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible. What's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five-book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this second temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news, or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We've got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? 
So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years, and from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But how does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. All right, so I hope you were paying attention. Can anybody tell me what the Jewish Bible is called in Hebrew? The Tanakh. Can anybody tell me what the acronym stands for? I'll take a raised hand. Go ahead. Which is in English? Which is what in English? No, no, what are each of those th three things in English? Go ahead. Phone a friend, go ahead, what is it? And the writings, very good, here you go, come here. I'm gonna give you a Bible project poster from Genesis. You can share it with your friend that you had to phone a friend for. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I want to read something. Uh, I was actually just kind of perusing through um, the new, the newest edition of Christianity Today that just came out a couple days ago, and uh, I get their their pastoral edition as well. If you guys ever want, by the way, um, I, I put these back there. You guys are always welcome to take them and, and check them out. Um, but I was I was reading through, and. Uh, Actually, the newest edition of Christianity Today did a, a pretty large piece on the Bible Project. And in this one, uh, the pastoral edition, they, they have an article called People of the E-Book. Have you guys ever heard of the phrase people of the book? Who are the people of the book? Christians, right? According to whom? According to Muslims. Did you know that? So Muhammad, in his writings, referred to Christians. You can go read it in the Quran, and the most common way that he refers to Christians in those writings is people of the book. So for centuries, Christians have been known as people of the book. And so this article does a play on words, and now we're called people of the e-book. Do our digital reading habits hamper our engagement with the Bible? I thought I'd read you an excerpt here. Does anybody remember the beta test that we've been running for about a year of trying to read a physical Bible and not just an e-screen? Um, go ahead and raise your hand if you'd like a Bible or need one. We'll pass them around, but we'd like to have everybody lay their eyes on a Bible for themselves. But I thought I would read this little excerpt for you just because I thought it was interesting and it pertains to what we're talking about here. Paper or pixels. The act of reading is not natural to the human brain. While scientists see reading in terms of evolution and adaptation, reading is, in some way, supernatural or at least unnatural. In her book, Reader, Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, neuroscientist Marianne Wolfe explains that reading is not hardwired in the human brain the way language is. Not only does the remarkable plasticity of the human brain make reading possible, but the activity of reading creates new circuits in the brain. These aid in learning abstract and creative concepts that go beyond the brain's genetically programmed functioning. 
Reading demands extraordinary cerebral complexity, Wolf says. And the brain requires years for deep reading processes to be formed. Our reading habits, therefore, have the potential to shape our brains for good or for ill. Deep reading activates regions of the brain related to touch, motion, and feeling, and helps develop the background knowledge that we bring to further reading and living. The consistent strengthening of the connections among our analogical, inferential, empathic, and background knowledge processes generalizes well beyond reading, Wolf explains. When we learn to connect these processes over and over in our reading, it becomes easier to apply them to our own lives. Her findings seem to confirm the truth of Psalm 119.11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And it goes on. <clears throat> and it talks about how scientists um, and researchers are now finding that the way that we read a physical piece of paper versus the way we read a screen it has different impact on how our brain processes and stores information and knowledge. And they're finding that actually reading screens is actually detrimental for us compared to reading books. Um, and so you guys are welcome to check this out if you'd like. But I thought I would start there, that when we're talking about is the Bible reliable, one of the things that we're going to get to is we got to read it. Sorry, this isn't the faith for you, right? No, so I remember when I became a Christian in my early 20s, I was in a major university. No, I wasn't. I was in community college. I'm sorry, strike that. I had dropped out of a major university by that time. But I had read a total of probably less than five books beginning to end my entire life. And you think, how did you make it through public education? And you think, wait a minute. Public education, how did you let him through? It happens, but thank Cliff Notes for that, and now I think it's Spark Notes for the younger generation. So I was not a reader, and when I tell you I was not a reader, I mean I was not a reader. Like my punishment, like my grounding probably couldn't have been worse if it was sit down and read for an hour quietly. I'm pretty sure I had undiagnosed ADHD, I was in athletics, and so my thing that I wanted to do was move around and not sit still and read. When I came into contact with the Bible though, and I started reading it seriously, I thought, I have never read a book like this. And I think it really helped me to become a reader. Now, I'm not a great reader. I don't, I'm not like a voracious reader. Probably many of you guys assume that I am. I'm clicking through like 40 or 50 books a month. You know, no, I'm not. I have to force myself and discipline myself to read. Uh, and I believe there's great value in it, but it's not something that comes naturally to me. So I just share that to say, we can't just relegate the Bible to people who are readers, right? Some of us naturally more enjoy reading and are better at it than others, but all of us can grow. So now we find ourselves in this cultural context, right? What's our cultural context? It's postmodern and it's post-Christian. And those are pretty self-explanatory. It's after modern and it's after Christian. And largely, the Bible's no longer taken automatically as divinely inspired like previous generations seem to kind of just assume that it was. That can be good and bad, right? There's a double-edged sword there. Listen to this excerpt from uh, 
the Christianity today. He says, since the Reformation, Protestants have held that a rich relationship with the Bible is central to the Christian life. But today, confidence in the Bible's truth and reliability is rapidly eroding, and questions about how the text came to us are at an all-time high. And even among scholars friendly to the faith, there seems to be little consensus about how to read our sprawling, enigmatic, diverse, and often confusing book. In an age of endless information, scriptural availability, and omnipresent teachings on the Bible, are we people of the book in real danger of losing it? Many feel we are. We find ourselves in what Biola New Testament professor Kenneth Birding has called a crisis of biblical literacy. And the trends are not encouraging. According to the American Bible Society, the largest group of American adults, 54%, are now Bible disengaged, a somewhat tepid term meaning they just don't care. Since 2009, Bible reading has dropped off sharply amongst younger adults, and as older generations decline or die, national averages of Bible engagement shrink. It's not about access. Nine out of 10 Americans have a Bible. It's not about interest. According to the American Bible Society, most people, 66%, say they want to know more about the Christian scriptures. The issue is perception. Skepticism about the Bible, Barna noted in 2016, is gaining a stronger cultural foothold. How many of you have ever heard from someone or yourself that this is not really to be trusted? This is not really reliable or trustworthy. This is growing in our culture. There, were, there was a time gone past, maybe some of you in here remember a time in the culture where it wasn't really looked at or perceived so suspiciously. It was just sort of more embraced and accepted that, yeah, this is, this is divine, this is from God, this is good for our lives. Perhaps even like the gentleman said on the, on the interview video, even if you don't believe in God, there's some really great things that can help you be a better person. But now that we're in this cultural soup that has all this suspicion and skepticism on the Bible, I think it's influencing us as well as disciples, right, as Christians. That's the main audience I'm talking to right now. And I think as disciples, we're in real danger of no longer being people of the book. For many of my own conversations with disciples here in this church, I think it's very applicable for us. Far too many of us simply don't read the Bible that much for ourselves. And we're being influenced by our post-Christian culture far more than we think, and we're not even realizing it. I want to mention just a few themes that I think can help us have confidence on the reliability of the Bible, okay? This is going to be a high-level flyover at 30,000 feet, as some like to hear me say. But I encourage you to dive a bit deeper in one of these themes for yourself. One theme, prophecy. Did you know that there are hundreds and hundreds of specific verifiable prophecies that this book makes that can either be verified or refuted? And after thousands of years so far, none to date can be refuted. There's a book that Lee Strobel wrote called The Case for Christ and also The Case for Faith. These are great introductory primers on some of these types of things. I've actually got some books out here on the back table. If you'd like to check them out, 
uh, feel free to just peruse through them. Please don't take them home. If you really, really would like to take one home, come and talk to me. But I have some resources back here that I think can be helpful starting places for those of us that really want to dive more into some of this. So then we have this theme of textual evidence, okay? Did you know that we have more high quality copies of this text than any other ancient document to date in the world? And we have actually way more than any other ancient text, any other ancient document. And some people like to argue about, oh, but what about the lost books of the Bible and the lost gospels and the gospel of Thomas? Dan Brown showed us. Thank you, Tom Hanks. You revealed that the Bible's whack, you know. Some guy named Constantine in 322 or 325 A.D. at the, the Council of Nicaea, he just chose what books he wanted in the Bible, right? Have any of you guys heard these arguments? The problem is that most times when people say those things, they just saw it on the Internet somewhere. Or they watched something on TV. And that's the end of their information. If you ask any more questions, they have none. And I think, like for me, many times these things are smoke screens for the real problem, which is I'm not interested in any God having lordship in my life. So textual evidence, we can actually be able to have great confidence in how the scriptures came to be. Even think about the deuterocanonical books. What about those? Has any of you read Tobit or Maccabees? Bell the Dragon, We're, we have Protestant Bibles, most of us, not Catholic Bibles, but if you grew up in a Catholic setting, maybe you're more familiar with those things. We can actually learn a lot about how did we get the scriptures in the form that they're in. And it's really misleading and oftentimes just flat wrong to reduce it down to something as silly as one guy in 300 just picked which ones he wanted. That's not true. There's a book back there by Lightfoot called How We Got the Bible. It's a great place to begin on textual evidences. He'll walk you through in a very, this is a very, you know, introductory sort of way. How did we get the Bible the way we have it? And is it reliable or did someone tamper with it? Can we be sure that this is really like close to what was actually written? Or did some guy along the way just go, nah, I don't like that. I'm just going to write something else. And how can we know? A lot of smart people have devoted their entire lives to this kind of study, and it's not hard to find out. You don't have to just go on Wikipedia, okay? I would encourage you guys to read some of this stuff. There's several other books back there on this topic as well. That's probably going to be the most common objection to the reliability of the scriptures, right? Well, somebody just messed it up, you know? How can I trust that what I have here in my book of John is even remotely close to what John actually wrote 2,000 years ago? Right? These are the types of questions that we're going to get or that we might even have. Right? Some of them might be philosophical, like how can I trust a God who's going to kill babies? You know? And there are ways for us to understand that as well. Another theme that helps us to have confidence in the reliability of the Bible, self-declaration. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Did I write that down wrong? Yeah, I'm sorry. I have first Timothy down here somewhere. 
Second Timothy three sixteen is what I'm looking for. It says all Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is just one passage in the Bible that makes a self-declaration type of statement. Paul here writing to Timothy says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, of course, he would have been referring to specifically the Old Testament, but by extension through the New Testament, you can see that, again, even as you look through church history, these writings came to be known as canonical. They started to be known as and believed in by the Christian community as inspired by God because it says that they are. So there is a component of self-declaration. The Bible actually claims that it is from God. Did you know that? Now, does the Bible claiming that it is from God make it so? No. So the next time you go, <clears throat> well, my good atheist friend, Joe or Jane or Shanene, if you think that the Bible is not from God, well, look, it says so right here. Huh. Just know that that might not be the most convincing argument for some. Because they might go, well, so what? Just because it says it's so doesn't mean it's true. You know, just because Dr. Seuss wrote green eggs and ham doesn't mean I actually like those things, right? So just because it says it doesn't make it so. But the fact that it does say it is important. Why? Adler is quoted as saying, among the major religions of the world, only three religions claim to have supernatural foundations, to be found in a sacred scripture that purports to be a divine revelation. The three religions distinguished by this claim are what? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. These are the only three religions in the world that claim that they are divinely revealed. Among other religions, some claim to have logical and factual truth, but the truth they claim to have is of human, not divine origin. Another, so that's something we have to wrestle with, right? Self-declaration. This actually says it's from God. We got to decide what to do with that. It's not like many other worldviews or religious notions that say, this is good teaching, but it's from a man, right? So we go, okay, well, it's from another person, so it's good. But this says it's from God. i got to wrestle with that. That's either true or false, right? So we do have to deal with the self-declaration statements of the Bible, including Jesus, who also said that he was God, the Son of God. Corroboration. This is another theme. Corroboration, right? Things that can help us to have confidence in the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, of the Bible. Corroboration. You don't really hear people regret following the scriptures. It's not like you hear somebody get up here and say, you know, 10 years ago, I decided to read and follow the scriptures, build my business, nurture my marriage, raise my kids, handle my money, and take care of my body according to the wisdom of scripture. And you know what? I completely regret it. That was terrible. Corroboration. The proof is in the pudding, as they say and in the eating of the pudding. That can help us have confidence in the reliability of the Scripture. Now, what do you hear people say? They get up here and say, well, 10 years ago, I decided to be a part of this church, and these jokers, they hurt me. I built my marriage, gave my money, and them jokers wronged me. 
I'm done with this. Okay, that's different than this. Okay, let's make that distinction very clear. That's important because that's another argument that you get. One that actually Mahat Gandhi was very popular for saying. Your Jesus I like, but your Christians I can't stand. The scriptures and the person of Jesus is often very different than Christians, right? And it would be humble of us to acknowledge that and embrace that even that, even with our friends, right? To say, hey, look, none of us live up to this perfectly. But, you know, as a lot of the epic students have seen me, you know, I, I'm just doing this. Oh, Lord, don't look at me. Just look at the scriptures. And let's do that together. Corroboration. Universality and invitation. So here's another theme that can give us trustworthy confidence in the reliability of the scriptures. Universality and invitation. <clears throat> Excuse me. No other sacred scriptures invite all people of all time. In Genesis 12, 3, I'm just going to highlight three different verses walking through the scope of the narrative of the Bible. Genesis 12, 3, in the very beginning of the story of the Bible, God tells one man what? I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in the very beginning of the story, God is introducing this narrative that this is going to be for everybody. That's unique on the world stage of religion. Jesus in Matthew 28, so Jesus walks on the scene, just like we saw the Bible Project do. He's this Jewish prophet continuing the storyline of the Old Testament prophets. And in Matthew 28, what does he say to go and do? Go and make disciples of what? All nations. Which again, was this fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets had said would, would happen. That God would work through one man, Abraham, then through his descendants, the nation of Israel, to impact and bless the entire world of all time. And then shortly after Jesus, Jesus' apostle, Peter, in Acts 2, says that this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves. Right after he gives the first Christian sermon, he talks about Jesus being this risen Lord and Messiah. He says, you know what? This is for everybody, for always. That's unique. The invitation and the universalism of God's invitation through the scriptures is unique. So in the face of all these types of evidences, right, that can give us confidence in the validity and reliability of the scriptures, I think there's two even more fundamental things that remain. Look over in Romans chapter 10. And just so you know, in, in modernism, apologetics became really big. And so we started thinking in the modern uh, cultural worldview, which would have been of the you know, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, that we can basically logic and reason people into faith. Now in postmodernism, there's skepticism on knowledge itself. And so us being able to reason people into faith, faith is probably going to be less and less effective, okay? Because people are automatically just culturally more skeptical. 
of even what we're saying to them. But I do think it's important for us to have reasonable confidence in why we believe what we believe. Contrary to popular belief, God never said in his word, I just want you to believe blindly with no information. Don't ask any questions. The Lord said it, therefore it is. Like, no, God has given us plenty of opportunities for reasonability in our faith. He's not asking us to believe something that's completely wild and unreasonable. And so this is what can help us to have confidence as well in the scriptures. But in Romans chapter 10, I think two things still remain. <clears throat> Verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? The one that they have heard is Jesus, by the way. And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. You have to hear the word about Jesus. And I think the best way for someone today to be able to hear the word about Jesus is to read the Bible for themselves. That's why we have a conviction here not to just take my word for it. Don't just trust what your pastor says. Don't just take what your Aunt Nene says, right? Don't just assume that your grandma's faith is going to get osmosis transferred over to you in a salvific way. Read the word for yourself. Hear the word about Christ for yourself. The Bible makes the claim that that's where faith actually comes from. It's not some mystical thing where we have to guess. He says, no, 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 listen, the word about Jesus, this is going to impart faith. And I think for us in our context, because most of us have Bibles and we are literate, a lot of the onus is on us to go after hearing this message. So please don't just come here every Sunday and expect what I say to you to get you off the hook on the last day. I don't want that responsibility. You definitely don't want that responsibility, right? And by God's sovereign providence, he's given us all the opportunity to know from the horse's mouth, as they say. John chapter 8, one more thing that I think is really most pertinent to this discussion. <clears throat> John chapter 8, what I call the Jesus money-back guarantee. <laughs> Jesus was not a used car salesman, but he did have a message. And I call this Jesus money-back guarantee because my mama raised me knowing ain't nothing in this life free, boy. And so you get what you pay for. And Jesus here is putting some big things on the line. He says in John 8, 31, it says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said. Now let's pause there. Who's the audience that Jesus is talking to? Jews and people that believed him. Now we don't know exactly what that means. What did they believe and not believe? But it had something to do with what Jesus was proclaiming about the kingdom of God being near. Potentially about him being the Messiah and initiator of that kingdom. These guys actually believe that. And to those people, this is what Jesus says. 
If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus' money-back guarantee. He says, you can believe in me all day long, buddy. But only if you do what I say are you really my follower. And only when you are really my follower will you experience this freedom and truth. Wow, Jesus, that's a big claim. You ever watch one of those infomercials and they make some money-back guarantee and you're like, I want to do that just to see because that's a crazy claim, you know? Or somebody told me recently, like, yeah, I, got a, I bought a new car and I got a for-life uh, uh, total complete bumper-to-bumper, -bumper, uh, what's it called? Um, warranty, thank you. For life? Really? Come on, man. And it's transferable? I said, okay, when you want to sell that car, you let me know. Bumper to bumper warranty for the rest of your life? Like, come on, man. You start doing the math in your head. You're like, somebody's losing money. That's just not right. So the only way they're making money is that they're planning on people not cashing in on that. The car is going to outlast you having it, and then the warranty will just sort of evaporate, and no one's going to know that it existed, right? That's how they're making money. But you think, wow, this is such a bold claim, such a bold guarantee. You almost want to just, just try it just to see, right? Because it's so audacious. You're like, that, that can't be right. That's how I feel when I read John 8. Jesus said that you can know truth. That's not, you can maybe know truth for you if you like it. No, he says, you will know the truth. That smacks our universalist relativistic ideas in the face. Jesus says, no, 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 here's a line in the sand, and I'm putting all my money on it. What you going to do? And he says, if you hold to my teachings, then it will lead to this. That's a true or false statement. So I tell people, you've got to be willing to put Jesus to the test. You can't walk away from Jesus. These Jews who believed in him couldn't walk away from Jesus going, oh, no, 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 Jesus. I don't know the truth. I ain't been set free from nothing without being willing to hold to his teachings. Because you've just made a conclusion based on something different than what he just told you. That's unfair. That means there's something else motivating you. Does that make sense? <clears throat> if we really want to know if Jesus is true and right, we've got to put his word to the test. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set me free. Of course, these guys, they started getting confused because they're like, we're not slaves of anybody. What are you talking about? Set free. And then he says what? Anyone who has sinned is a slave to sin. So Jesus starts talking about freedom from sin, which starts to encroach on this idea of spiritual freedom, right? Because sin is kind of this ethereal spiritual concept. It's not like a physical, you know, table or microphone or something. It's an idea. And he says, you can be set free from that. but only if you do what I say. So I think for many of us, and this was for me also, my conclusions about the Bible, what it was and where it came from and why we had it, really actually had very little to do with empirical evidences and rational thought. It had to do with the fact that I didn't want to do what Jesus said. I didn't want to deny myself. I didn't want to take up my cross. I didn't want to flee from sin. I didn't want to cut off my right hand and gouge out my right eye if they caused me to sin. I didn't want to do that. 
So why would I want to read any of this? It's much easier for me to conclude, ah, phooey. This is just some made up thing. But that's an unfair, irrational conclusion to make of Jesus. The only way that we can make a fair assessment of Jesus is to actually put him to the test. Take his money back guarantee. Help other people take the money back guarantee. Actually do what Jesus says and see if it doesn't lead to what he said it would. And if it doesn't and you wholeheartedly devote yourself to holding to Jesus' teachings and it doesn't do what he said it's going to do, well now you can fairly walk away saying, that dude's not real. He's not true. That's a liar. I've been doing this for almost 20 years. I have yet to find that happen. So Jesus' money back guarantee apparently is pretty real. So if you're not already studying the Bible in an intent way for yourself, I would invite you to ask someone here in this church to sit down with you, to study the Bible for these purposes, that we can be able to experience the reason that God gave us the word in the first place, that we may know who he is, know who we are, and have life in his kingdom full of grace and truth. Let's pray as we close out. Heavenly Father, I mean, I guess you could just do whatever you wanted. If you really are who the Bible says you are, you could have just, you know, written some script in the sky that was irremovable and it was just always there or, you know, put a hologram of yourself right in front of our faces 24-7. I mean, you could have communicated yourself theoretically in any way you wanted to. And yet, the way you chose to communicate yourself to us was through this process of speaking through people and to people and it being recorded and compiled over long expanses of time in human history that we can know who you are, that we can know who we are, that we can know what story we are a part of, that our story is not limited by the 80 or 90 so years that we get here, that our story isn't limited by how much money we can gain or power or how much other people like us, but that we're in a grander story than that. That we were created with purpose, with love. That we were created eternally. Help us, Father, to live in that story, to embrace and accept your invitation, to come into that story with you, and to help others to do the same. To leave the story of the world, the story that so quickly erodes and fades away and leaves us hopeless and desperate and longing God, your story fulfills all of our longings. Your story completely sets us free through Jesus. Help us to fall in love with your word that reveals your story to us and that we would walk with Jesus all the days of our life, wholeheartedly, not just through religious duty, but that we would really want what Jesus has to offer us. And that is a life of truth and freedom. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.